They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Excuse me. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal. Thanks. Wow. Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.e forward slash music. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Jane Caro, is an author, novelist, journalist, broadcaster, columnist, advertising writer and social commentator. She spent 30 years as an advertising writer, and her creative work has won many national and international awards. Her six-part ABC radio series, For Better, For Worse, is now being produced as a four-part TV series for ABC Compass. Jane has also appeared on The Drum, Q&A, The Project, Daily Edition, Mornings on Nine, Studio 10, and Today. She writes regular monthly columns for Management Today magazine and The Sun-Herald Sunday Life. Her latest book and the subject of our chat today is Plain Speaking Jane. Jane Caro, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Jane, um, tell me, what, what prompted you to write your memoir? I mean, I know you were you were asked to do so. But, but what, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, basically, it never crossed my mind that I write a memoir because, you know, I'm not one of those <clears throat> ultra-high achievers who climbed Mount Everest or been held hostage in Afghanistan and won a medal for bravery or won a gold medal at the Olympics or done anything out of the box. Uh, so I didn't think I was the sort of person, you know, who, who wrote about her life. I saw my life as a fairly ordinary one, but my publisher, uh, I wrote a book for Pam McMillan called For God's Sake, an atheist, that's me, a Christian, a Jew, and a Muslim debate religion. And uh, my contributions to that made my publisher say, there's a memoir here and I want you to write it. And I went, oh, God, I've never thought about it. I can't write a memoir, don't be silly. And she said, I'll pay you this month. I said, okay, <laughs> memoir sounds good. Uh, and so I had to sit down and think about it and, and really uh, work out what it was that I felt was worth concentrating on because you, you know a life doesn't really have a self-conscious narrative arc you know it's one thing after another but a book a book does need to tell some kind of coherent story so that was the hard part for me coming up with what that would be and and um it seems to me that the title plain speaking jane really um it really encompasses that that thread the the thrust of the oh. book um, not just yeah. the idea of speaking from the hip, but you know, also about the therapeutic value of breaking silence. Yes, exactly right. And then, in fact, I decided uh, quite early on that if I was going to do this thing, I had to do it as honestly and as plainly as I could uh, because my resistance was all to do with the fact that I didn't think I was special. And now that sounds like I'm being really modest and, you know, orgy shucks. But actually, it's a really important part of my life philosophy, not to think of myself as special. It's one of the ways that I uh, do all the things I do, um, is that I, I just get on and do the next thing. Uh, and that was a hard realization to come to. And the book, I suppose, is really about my struggle with a florid anxiety neurosis, which to some extent was all about me wanting to be special, and giving that idea up and learning how to accept cheerfully and, and, and with good humour um, my lack of specialness and how liberating that was. Yes. Do, do you feel to a certain extent, though, the book's been out a year now, that um, sure. 
not so much specialness, but but um, you've touched chords in people, that people have actually found themselves in your work and that that has actually had a very positive effect. Yes, that's been really wonderful. And what I have discovered, as I think often happens, but it's like you have to do it over and over again to remind yourself of something that happens, is when you reveal what you see as your deepest, darkest secrets, in this case mine was obsessive compulsive neurosis, I didn't have the compulsions, just the horrible obsessive violent thoughts. And, and, you know, while you're in the group of them, you're terribly ashamed of them and you'll do almost anything not to let anyone know what's going on in your crazy mind. But when you actually do reveal your struggles of anxiety and with the crazy side of yourself, the, the only reaction you get from people is perhaps the two most wonderful words in the English language, which is me too. And instead of feeling like a weirdo, which you so dreaded you would be, you so dreaded, I think this is the thing about mental illness, when you're in the grip of it, what you dread is to be cast out, is to be literally uh, rejected. You know, you are weird, you are crazy, you are you are mad, you are bad, you know, you should be cast out. That's the sort of fear. And actually, when you finally talk about it, that's the very op- the very opposite things happen. thing happens. You get told, yeah, that, you know, this is something other people struggle with too, and that you are not crazy, you are not weird, and you are not bad. And that is wonderfully liberating. And if my book has had that effect on some people, and from what people have said to me, it, it appears that it is, then I'm extremely glad I wrote it. Yes. And not just the OCD, although that, you know, you do speak about that, you know, quite candidly. And I think a, a lot yes. of people who struggle with particularly intrusive thought OCD will find that very helpful. But there's other, there are other yeah. silences um, that you oh, break yes. through the book, being run over, speaking out about abortion, women's rights. There's a whole range of things, aren't there? Yes, yes. That, um, I mean, I think I was very lucky in that uh, I was brought up in a family where conversation was an issue of stuffing trade. And not just uh, light hard, not the use of words to obscure, which I find is, is the habit in um, a lot of other families, the use of words to obscure and to veil. In my family, the use of language was to uh, discover, to find out, to, um, uh, to open up. And so it was a habit I had been trained in, thank goodness. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was able to use that with my anxiety. I sought help because I had really been taught, I suppose, you know, if you're in trouble, find help and that was enormously powerful because I think a lot of the things that people have identified with are the ordinary garden variety insecurities and 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 fears and um, shames that so many of us have particularly women but not just women as I've discovered um, and therapy even though it didn't cure my um, obsessive uh, compulsive neurosis uh, for a very long time, it taught me so much else about how to manage um, all those those difficult feelings and emotions that we have, particularly when we're young. And one of the great things about writing this book has been um, the sense that it's um, unlocked language for people that they didn't have. I had an experience on a radio station in Perth, a rather blokey talkback station, where uh, a caller rang and said that uh, he just had to pull over in his car that he was a 55-year-old bloke uh, and he'd been listening to everything I said and uh, it was the first time he'd ever realised that what he'd been suffering from all his life was anxiety. He'd never had a name for it. And that was just fantastic. It was a wonderful, 
moment for me and I hope it was the beginning of him um, being able to unravel what he'd been struggling with all his life. So has it changed your perception of what memoir what memoir is that in fact it's not a confessional but rather you know social commentary or social perception through this the lens of the self yes and i think i think actually in a way it's um it's a form of um history uh in the in terms of someone's experience of the times in which they have lived and the place in which they have lived so it does have the universality that history has and it probably, um, I mean, I, I love memoirs and I've always read them because I'm very interested in people's real lives, lived lives. Uh, and I think you get them a tremendous sense of the forces at play at a, in a particular time in a particular place through memoir. And, and I hope that, you know, mine is very much about being a child of the, uh, born in the 50s, brought up in the 60s, being a young teenager and then a young woman in the 70s and 80s and all really a lot about the effects that uh, second wave feminism had on women of my um, era and in my, in my view, the incredibly positive effect. Yes, and, and um, you also bust open a lot of genre or a lot of, I guess, a lot of preconceptions. I mean, one of those, of course, is OCD and I, I imagine how irritating it is to suffer from something that people have turned into, uh, you know, uh, a, a, an ill-conceived slogan. And, and I think yeah. feminism, too, in, in the same way, that people use these terms without knowing the underlying power yeah. of what they're using. Absolutely. And I, and I become a kind of uh, a glib representation of something, which is a, a real... Um, agonising struggle that people live with every day. I mean, the horror of OCD is its obsessiveness. Is it's it's never leaving you. It's you know it's it's like being dogged you know every few minutes with something that um, makes you twist and turn with misery and shame. Uh, and so it's <laughs> yes, it's much worse than the, the the glib use of the term. But I don't mind that. I mean, people use language to communicate things, and I do like colourful and vivid language, and sometimes taking things like OCD, or, you know, I'm just, I'm sensitive about that, uh, it's okay. It is a colourful and vivid way of demonstrating um, a particular, you know, character trait, emotional state, whatever it is you want to call it. I'm I'm wary of it all being agonisingly aware of every single possible offence that could be taken to the use of a particular phrase. I think we could lighten up about that a bit. Fair enough. And I suppose the more we do talk, even glibly, um, the, the less stigma is associated with this thing. Exactly. Exactly. The more we name it, the less shame is attached to it. In fact, I'm very interested how it seems to me that feminism as a project is at the moment very much involved in taking the shame out of so many things. If you look at the things Amy Schumer talks about, for example, um, even I, first few times, found them quite shocking. And now I think, no, that's absolutely wonderful. She's naming what women have always been darkly ashamed of, their own bodily functions, um, in a way that has no shame attached. And by doing so, she makes women feel fundamentally better about being female. Because I think uh, part of misogyny, uh, the unspoken part of misogyny, was just the shame attached to being that disgusting thing 
a woman. And if our bodily functions, our natural bodily functions, are regarded as so foul that they cannot be um, named or discussed or in some cultures, you know, you have to be shut up in a shed and, you know, you're called unclean. Well, that's a, that's, that's a pretty devastating way to live. What can you do about it? You are that thing called a woman. How wonderful for someone like a comedian to start to uh, pull that apart for the nonsense that it is. Yes, and so that young young women can walk around and be quite comfortable going, you know, hashtag, hashtag on my period, <laughs> whatever. Exactly, and, yeah. and not have to walk around hiding with tampon and, you know, blush furiously, as my generation did, if your bags spilled open and all your tampons fell out and you just felt like you wanted the earth to open up and swallow you. Why? Why should we feel like that? Yes, for sure. And, and as you say, talking about being open about these things makes them much more natural. Yes, and the shame goes. Yeah. There's no need to feel shame. And I think that the emotion of shame is a very debilitating one. Mm. Yes. So um, one of the things that did help you um, early on, quite early on, was memorizing yeah. De- 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 yes. by Max Ehrman. Yes, yes, yes. Did, did you see that as an act of mindfulness almost? I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Um, I just found that by... In a way, it was an almost melancholy uh, comfort because what I really liked about it was, you know, no doubt the university is unfolding as it should and that the world was going would go on whatever happened to me. In fact, I think it was the beginning of my understanding that thinking of yourself as the centre of everything and as so special and powerful and important was at the root of a lot of neurosis. And that, in fact, to recognise your smallness, your insignificance, the fact that you didn't matter, was, in fact, the beginning of sanity. Um, And, you know, that's become very important to me. And it's not false modesty. It's It's a real acceptance of the fact that I can do whatever it is that I'm doing and it's fine for me to enjoy it and it's fine for me to do the best I can. But if it all goes horribly pear-shaped and wrong, well, that's unfortunate for me. That's all it is unfortunate for me. It has no greater effect. Yes. Yes, and I suppose that's a freedom that comes with age too, I think. It is. It is. I hope it is also a book about... Um, maturing and growing up and, um, you know, the gifts that come with getting older. I often say your outside gets worse, but your inside gets better. So at at one point in the book you provide the tip, and it's a great tip, by the way, (laughs) that gave you some of your best ads. (laughs) Find one fact and the rest will come. Um, Yeah. Does the same apply for your books? Find the thesis? (laughs) Find the thread? Yeah, I think so. Find what it is you really want to talk about. Find what it is that you're really trying to say, um, and then and then you will find a way to say it. There is a there is a an argument there that there's a reason you think that thing you think, um, and if you can put down those reasons as to why you think it, um, you may not convince absolutely everybody. You probably won't convince all that many people, but you will put together a coherent and interesting read. And it's not harder than that. Um, I also say in the book somewhere that people say that the good is the enemy of the great. I've now come to the view that the great is the enemy of the good, that people spend a great deal of time not doing what they could do very well because they feel they're not great. And in fact, who knows what great is? I don't know. I think it's something other people judge and they probably judge it 200 years after you've died. Uh, But I think good is what we all can do and should do uh, and that 
you know, you don't you don't set out to do a task to be the best possible person that's ever done this particular thing. You set out to do a good job. And that is doable. And that takes away the fear of it, which paralyzes and makes people pretentious and, and sometimes just shuts them up, which is such a shame. Yes. It shut me up for a very long time, the feeling that I wasn't great. Well, now I know for sure I'm not great. Uh, and who cares? Why should that matter? And, 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 and that's a freedom to too. Yes, that's a freedom too. And again, that goes right yeah. back again to this plain talking idea. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, and, and, and the desire, I really do have a very strong desire just to be another person, you know, in the crowd, the ordinary person who's, you know, I, I do have a skill with words, I've worked with them all my life, that's my stuff in trade, that's what I use, uh, and I, you know, I, I, I'm aware of that. But otherwise, what interests me is ordinary life and ordinary people. I mean, I've made that series for Compass for Better for Worse, and I'm right in the middle of making a second one, uh, which is uh, the working titles of which is uh, Mothers and Sons and Fathers and Daughters. And what I'm interested in is not the great heroes or the people who've, you know, achieved marvellous things and out-of-the-box things. I'm interested in ordinary people and ordinary lives. Because, in, you know, what I find is they're absolutely fascinating and also they're like us. We don't have to stand back and go, gosh, I'll never be as good as that person. We can sit there and watch this person and say, yeah, I'm like that. It's like the attraction of Gogglebox, which I find myself loving um, almost despite myself because I identify with all those people. They feel like me. They feel, when they say things, I think, how sensible. That's what I thought. And it's kind of, um, you know, reaffirm my faith in humanity. Uh, and I think, yeah, it goes with my, my bedrock suspicion of greatness. And so, yeah. But there's also a kind of beauty in this everyday living, isn't there? I mean, yeah. there's, there's all sorts of moments of, you know, great gorgeousness. Oh, yes. But it's, 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 it's humble. It's, it's a gorgeousness and a greatness, and I agree with you. I think there, are great, there is greatness in everyday life. But it's, it's a greatness with humility. Mm. It's a greatness that doesn't expect to be applauded or observed or made much of. Um, I, in a way, I would use, I, I see a lot of people in life who I regard as gallant, in that they, you know, they've had a lot to deal with, a lot to put up with, a lot of hardship, a lot of difficulty, and they have kept on, and they have kept on with a, with a, with a humility and a cheerfulness that I see as gallant, and I have great admiration for that, um, much more than I have uh, for, you know, the noisy and the um, and the special. Yes. I'm 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 very wary of that stuff, as you can probably tell from this podcast. <laughs> yes. So, despite the ordinary in the so-called ordinariness of your uh, memoir, you do come across some pretty big names. Um, it's pretty star-studded <laughs> at times. It's Peter Carey, Bryce Courtney, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, and quite a few others seem to be associated. Some very literary type authors, Don DeLillo, Salman Rushdie, seem to be associated with advertising or have gotten their yes, start in yes. advertising. Why do you think that is? F. Scott uh, well, first, well, first of all, advertising is one of the few places where if you're good with words or pictures, you can make a living. Um, so obviously there's that. It is also one of the few industries left that rewards performance and talent. It's not actually terribly interested in qualifications. 
um, it's much more interested in what you can actually deliver. And of course, people who go on to uh, do well in uh, literature and art and film are people who are very much about performance and who can deliver. That's what that's about. Everyone says, I've got a book in me. Well, that's all very well, but you actually have to sit down and write it. And that's what those Salman Rushdie, Peter Carey, Bryce Courtney, etc., etc., all did. Uh, so I think it, it, it attracts those kinds of people. It also teaches you things that I think perhaps you don't learn anywhere else. And that is how to engage audiences. And I think that is such an important skill. And also how to value audiences. That in fact, it isn't about you, the writer. It's about them, the reader. And once you understand that, as you sit down to tell your tale, whatever that tale may be, you're halfway to writing a book that people are going to enjoy reading. If you sit down to write any kind of uh, a book with it's all about me, the writer, geez, you better be good. Yes, it's one of your big life lessons, isn't it? The importance, too, of mat- matching the message. Yes, to yes. The I, I really learned that in high school. I learned that as a particularly unprepossessing child uh, who uh, used big words in uh, the sporty northern beaches of the 19, early 1960s, uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, and was very, very bad at sport. And that, you know, I wanted to have friends and I wasn't having any by talking and being the way that I had been brought up to be. And so I pretty quickly worked out that if I uh, changed the words I used and thought about using the language that my audience used uh, and fitting myself in, in ways that were involved, you know, raising my skirts short, growing my hair long and having a boy, any boy on my arm, oh, and smoking cigarettes and swearing, they were both very important, then I would find a way to connect with these people without having to change what I thought or who I was. They were only superficial aspects of my um, character or as my behaviour, not even of my character, and it worked and it taught me that you have to match your delivery to the people you're talking to. It's no good talking down to people. Or talking at people. Mm. You have to talk with people and you have to actually respect them. Respect that their choices and their way of living is just as valid as yours. Yes. Do you, do you think sometimes we fail to connect in today's world? That, that you know, this is a pretty ongoing issue, this need to match mm-hmm. the message and the audience. I think we, um, there is a great deal of scrambling for status. Uh, I think we have really started to use, I think, what was once envisaged to be the the great, you know, a way of democratising the world, the market, to do exactly the opposite, to create hierarchies. And so what we have now is a situation where those at the top are fatally failing to connect with those uh, who are not as fortunate as they have been. Uh, Hence, we see the rise of people like uh, Donald Trump, who, although he's completely insane and has absolutely no substance to what he's saying, he knows one thing, he knows how to engage an audience. And that's exactly what he's doing. He also knows how not to talk down to people. And I think when we talk about politicians being unable to connect, that's what we really mean, that they sound like they're lecturing us or hectoring us. In fact, I think that's where Malcolm Turnbull's coming undone at the moment in the current election. He likes to take his finger notice and wag it a lot. Very bad gesture. 
<laughs> don't do that. Uh, and he does tend to get slightly kind of, well, listen here, people, let me tell you what the real facts of this issue are. That's a very bad way. You're not going to get anywhere doing that. And it seems a great many of the privileged, those who've been lucky all their lives, gone to schools where they were told they were special and the creme de creme and bound to lead, you know, then to university where they were stars, then into politics where they were into, in Malcolm's case, business where he was stars, courts where he was stars. The people who've been stars all their lives have a major problem and a major blind spot. How do you talk to people who've never been a star? Without making it like you just leave it to me, honey, I'm a star. I'll do it. I'll I'll tell you what to do, and that's where they that's where they lose out badly. And unfortunately, we used to disapprove of that behaviour, but we have become captive to it again. It's interesting the human desire to build hierarchy, to create uh, elites, and you know, in, in, uh, people who are in, who are admired, and people who are cast out. And it's a great mistake. And in the end, the people who think they've made themselves into superior beings pay a very high price for it. It doesn't work out well. It never has. Any student of history will tell you that. So, yes, I'm in praise of ordinariness. I'm in praise of humility. And I'm in praise of... And, that, you know, in a way, that's what Barnaby Joyce um, is actually much better at connecting with people than most of... Uh, the others on his side of politics. But it doesn't sound like he's um, talking down to you. Jackie mm. Lambie is another example. And uh, But there are, uh, you don't have to be a, a, a redneck or a, a kind of Donald Trumpish, um, you know, popularist to do that. Tanya Flipperstick, yes, Penny Wong. Red a lot hair. of women are good at it. Yes, we won't mention anybody in particular. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... Um, yeah, I think it's 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 a lack of connection and a lack of understanding how important it is to respect your audience that is undoing a lot of our public discourse. Yes, and, and private discourse perhaps too. This only connect seems to me to be so important. Yes, and, and our private discourse too, um, particularly perhaps parents with children. Mm. Uh, the, the, the lack of ability to respect your child's point of view, that doesn't mean you can't... Uh, draw a line and say that they have to behave a certain way, but uh, it does mean you have to respect their right to resent that. <laughs> you know, they're allowed to have their emotions while still having to do what you said to, said they should do. A lot of parents seem to want to discipline their children and then expect their children to pretend they like being disciplined or are so terrified of the ne negative reaction they won't discipline at all. Neither of those alternatives, it seems to me, are very helpful. Mm. So it's, as we mentioned, it's been over a year since the book has come out, or nearly a year. Um, has anything really shocked or surprised you in the reception of the book? Oh, uh, pleasantly, yes. Um, the, the, the fact that so many people identify so strongly with what I've written, mm -hmm. that I get so many people saying, you know, this, I, 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 you know, so resonated with everything you said, this felt like my life too. Uh, yes, I didn't expect to have that kind of um, sense of identification and it's been extremely rewarding. That that is that has really um, you know made the whole the whole project really worthwhile. Just to just to, to realise that you know I practiced what I preached. Yay! I connected. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, did you have an ideal reader in mind, or were you surprised at who became? I mean, you talked about the the, the blokey guy who pulled over. 
Mm. Overcome mm. With yes, no, I never have an ideal reader in mind, mm. not in terms of demographics or outward uh, identifiers. Uh, that's something I learned in advertising is a crock of nonsense. It doesn't work. Defining people by their demographics or even their psychographics is a waste of time. My ideal reader is another human being with whom I can connect emotionally. Um, I don't care what gender they are, what age they are, what race they are what their education is, what class they belong to or, or what they do for a living. I'm interested in making an emotional connection with another human being. I strongly believe that whilst we rush around in life uh, policing the differences between people and, uh, you know, analysing as all as if we're all logical specimens, um, that actually um, there's much more that is similar about human beings than there is that is different. And if only we emphasise those similarities. And in fact, you can only connect when you emphasise those similarities. As soon as you emphasise the differences, you fail to connect. Mm, absolutely. So um, tell me a little bit more about uh, what's on the cards at the moment. You've talked about mothers and sons, fathers and daughters. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, I'm also... Uh, Six chapters into the third volume in the trilogy about Elizabeth I, my young adult historical novel series, uh, which will be called Just Flesh and Blood. So that's coming out next year. And I'm also uh, just beginning the process of editing a book of essays uh, by well-known women writers uh, about um, basically the worst experiences in their lives. Wow. Oh, that, that, that all mm. sounds amazing. So really looking forward to it all. It's all we have time for. But, Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. And bye for now. My pleasure.